Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. We put them together, now they're broken and bruised. I hope you don't mind if I wasted your time. Some things meant to last, but not from the past. My soul is lost, can you help me find him? Last autumn when I last friend him Wander around like a man with no home Went to work and barely brought back a phone This time I know my heart Hello listeners and welcome to Ohio Mysteries You're listening to a clip of Lost Soul by Luke Hurst Luke is our featured Ohio musical artist tonight So hang out with us to the end of the podcast We'll tell you all about him and let you listen to that entire song. But right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Acker Beacon Journal. Hi, everybody. Now... I don't know about you, but when I think of the era of prohibition, I see a national mystery. How in the hell did that happen? Do you have that same reaction? It's crazy, isn't it? I've watched enough drunk history to know how much, you know, alcohol has been part of our past. It's it's crazy that that happened. I mean, my question is, how did America... Okay, a land of freedom-loving people, some of whom would die to defend their right to own a gun, agree to give up the right to drink a beer. How could they be persuaded to condemn to extinction a right they had been exercising since Europeans set foot in the New World? (laughs) Right. Well... Well, I don't know if you realize we were celebrating an anniversary this year because it was 100 years ago this year in 1920 that voters in all but two states ratified a new amendment to the Constitution. The Constitution, that document that does such lofty things as protect our right to free speech and freedom to practice whatever religion we want, now added the 18th Amendment a ban on the production, transport, and sale of intoxicating liquors. And away we went to a violent era of speakeasies, bootleggers, and organized crime. I'm sure over the past century, many historians and sociologists have tried to study the nuances in our culture that allowed this law to pass. But when pressed, most of them narrow it all down to a single human being, a little boy in Trumbull County, Ohio, who got poked by a pitchfork in the hands of a drunk farmhand and never got over it. 
a boy who would grow into a man so skilled at manipulating state and federal officials, newspaper editors would call him the most powerful individual in the country. A man so ruthless in his pursuit of prohibition, he advocated a program that randomly poisoned lawbreakers who took a drink. Tonight's story is the story of Wayne Bidwell Wheeler, who Smithsonian Magazine once called the man who turned off the taps. Wayne Wheeler was born in 1869 in Brookfield Township in Trumbull County on Ohio's northeastern border. His parents, Joseph and Mary Wheeler, were farmers who hired hands to help with chores. When Wayne was a boy, one of those helpers had too much to drink, and the intoxicated worker accidentally impaled young Wayne's leg with a hay fork. It's the single incident in Wayne's childhood we know well, because one day he will tell the story over and over in his work to recruit converts to the prohibition movement. After graduating from high school, Wheeler got his teaching certificate and spent a couple of years as a school teacher. Then he enrolled at Oberlin College to study law, paying his tuition by working as a waiter, janitor, summer school teacher, and salesman. Wheeler was a small man, no more than five foot seven, with wire-rimmed glasses and a tidy mustache. He looked more like a bank teller than a man who was on a path to change history. But a classmate once called him a locomotive in trousers, and the world was about to find out why. While still a college student, Wheeler met a man named Howard Hyde Russell. He had heard him deliver a fiery temperance lecture at a church in Oberlin, and he signed up to join Russell's brand new organization. It was called the Anti-Saloon League, a grassroots group that worked extensively through churches. Wheeler took the job as a field organizer for the league, but continued his studies. He collected a BA from Oberlin, then went on to get his law degree from Western Reserve University. His personality was well suited to the task. He was skilled in organizing and debating, and his teaching and law background made him an exceptional communicator. He was soon appointed the Anti-Saloon League's head attorney, where he kept busy filing numerous lawsuits in support of alcohol regulation. In 1901, he married Ella Bell Candy, a union that produced three children. But from his love letters he wrote to Ella, we know his family came second. In his letters, professions of affection were sprinkled with observations about his group's activities. In 1902, Wheeler became head of the whole operation, executive director of the increasingly powerful Anti-Saloon League. And here's where he began to shine. He perfected a system called pressure politics, where the league would target politicians that didn't support their strict anti-alcohol stance and try to destroy them through media campaigns, public demonstration, and revealing skeletons in their closets. Wheeler's first victim was no less than the governor of Ohio, 
1906, Governor Myron Herrick was running for re-election when Wheeler became disappointed in him for agreeing to a compromise on a local liquor option. Wheeler and his league backed his opponent, John Pattison, and Pattison won. Wheeler boasted, never again will any political party ignore the protests of the church and the moral forces of the state, which really meant never again would any candidate ignore Wayne Wheeler. This style of pressure politics came to be called Wheelerism. He was a ruthless lobbyist. And he didn't believe in slow change. He had no patience for those arguing for treatment and education. He wanted tough laws, strictly and unsympathetically enforced. Now, there were other temperance advocates out there, but other organizations had always taken on many causes, maybe adding women's suffrage or humanitarian issues into their mix. The Anti-Saloon League, under Wayne Wheeler, had only one goal that consumed their every waking moment, getting states to pass stricter alcohol laws. Wheeler and his league backed numerous statewide officials, state legislators, and members of Congress who won their elections, then applied his pressure politics to make sure they kept their promises. His power was such that a New York newspaper once called Wheeler the legislative bully before whom the Senate of the United States sits up and begs. And with Wheeler's dogs in office, it was time to move to his ultimate goal, national prohibition. Wheeler took a movement that started long before he was ever born and dragged it to the top of the mountain. The Anti-Saloon League was credited as the most effective force in the passage of the 18th Amendment which banned the production, transport, and sale of alcohol beverages throughout the United States. The amendment needed to be ratified by 36 of the 48 states. There were only 48 states back then. Ohio ratified the amendment on January 7, 1919. Nebraska was the state that carried the amendment across the line on January 16. After voters approved the new law, Congress passed the Volstead Act, which created federal powers to enforce prohibition. Wheeler frequently claimed to have essentially written the entire thing. Congressman Andrew Volstead, who sponsored the legislation, repeatedly denied it was mostly Wheeler. And yet we know from history that whenever Congress needed someone to explain the act's complex provisions... It was a Wheeler they called on. In January of 1920, the 18th Amendment and the Volstead Act went into effect, and the country went dry. The new Bureau of Prohibition handed Wheeler control of an operation that hired the federal officers responsible for apprehending alcohol makers and sellers. But where there's a will, there's a way. And just because it was a law, didn't mean there weren't a whole lot of people unwilling to give up their toddies. This gave rise to bootleggers, people who manufactured alcohol in their barns and basements. 
and speakeasies, those hidden drinking establishments only accessible to people who knew what brick to pull in the back alley or what secret password to whisper after three raps to a nondescript door. Gangsters and the likes of Al Capone flourished, making millions off providing the illegal beverages. Underworld entrepreneurs began producing rot gut, alcohol full of dangerous diseases. And in big cities, where the majority of people opposed prohibition to begin with, the whole system made officials, lawmakers, and judges at the local level especially prone to corruption and bribes from the growing power of criminal bosses. In the end, America never lost its taste for alcohol, as Wheeler had hoped. Enforcement of prohibition was a nightmare. Several years into prohibition, when it was clear the nation was worse off for it, the people Wheeler had in his pocket tried to get him to compromise. How about amending the law to allow for beer and ale, for instance? Wheeler was immovable. But his inflexibility eventually wore on those who had supported him, and his influence began to wane. And then the straw that broke the camel's back, a dark and deadly turn. In January of 1922, a 35-year-old Robert Doyle, a veteran of World War I, was found blinded and afraid cowering in his rooming house on West 23rd Street in New York City. He was taken to a hospital where he died six hours later. They traced his death to alcohol that had been laced with methanol. In the same New York Times edition that reported his death, the paper told of another man who had brought alcohol home from the furniture polishing company where he worked to add it to his coffee. His alcohol had also been tainted. These deaths were no accident. The federal government knew that while it could ban the brewing of beer and making of wine, it couldn't ban industrial alcohol. That was used to make everything from perfume to paint. Bootleggers had learned how to redistill industrial alcohol to make it drinkable. So the government hired chemists to work on new deadly formulas that couldn't be boiled away. Manufacturers were required to add these toxic chemicals to industrial alcohol, even knowing people desperate for a drink would ingest them. The World War I veteran and that furniture store worker were just the beginning. Newspapers kept tallies of Americans suspected of dying from poisonous liquor. They were most often working class or poor people who couldn't afford the beer or whiskey that was being smuggled in from Canada and Mexico. By Christmas of 1926, it was impossible to ignore the crisis. In New York alone, dozens of people dropped dead after drinking during holiday festivities. In the end, it is believed anywhere from 10,000 to 50,000 Americans across the country were killed by the government purposely poisoning industrial alcohol to cause harm to anyone who drank it. It is unclear to me if Wheeler was in the room where these decisions happened. Some accounts suggest he helped push for it. But there is no doubt that publicly he was the biggest advocate for it. 
when others suggested trying to use something that would simply make the alcohol distasteful, like soap. Wheeler said, no way. Poison was the only way to get the attention of people who were flouting the law, he said. Government was under no obligation to protect the lives of citizens who were committing a crime, in this case, the crime of drinking alcohol. Wheeler said as far as he was concerned, these people had committed suicide. Wheeler's callous attitude crossed a line, even to a government that had crafted the poisons to begin with. He not only turned off the lawmakers he had helped get elected, some of whom were now describing the policy as legalized, willful, and premeditated murder, but it tainted the public reputation of the Anti-Saloon League. In early 1927, Wheeler stepped down from the league. And that wasn't even the worst thing to happen to him that year. A few months after his retirement, Wheeler's wife was burned to death in a cooking accident at his house in Little Point Sable, Michigan. His father-in-law suffered a fatal heart attack while trying to come to her aid. Just two weeks after their deaths, on September 5, 1927, Wheeler succumbed to kidney disease. He was 57 years old. He died at a sanitarium in Battle Creek, Michigan, then was returned to Ohio and buried in Green Lawn Cemetery in Columbus next to his wife. Public sentiment by now was turning against prohibition, and the Great Depression hastened its demise as people argued that a ban on alcohol denied jobs to the unemployed and much-needed revenue to the government. And after Wheeler's death, he was replaced by a longtime rival, Ernest Charrington, who preferred that the League stress education and treatment over force and punishment. In 1932, the presidential campaign of a guy named Franklin D. Roosevelt called for repealing prohibition. He won, and it was. In 1933, the 21st Amendment to the Constitution repealed the 18th Amendment to the Constitution. After Wheeler died, a biography had this to say about him. Wayne B. Wheeler controlled six Congresses dictated to two presidents of the United States, directed legislation in most of the states of the Union, picked the candidates for the more important elective state and federal offices, held the balance of power in both Republican and Democratic parties, distributed more patronage than any dozen other men, supervised a federal bureau from outside without official authority, and was recognized by friend and foe alike as the most masterful and powerful single individual in the United States. And yet, you've probably never even heard of Wayne Wheeler before tonight. So perhaps that's our second mystery of the evening, Steve. How did this puppet master become so completely forgotten? Yeah, I never heard of him before this. Uh, it's crazy. Maybe just America blacked it out. You know how you go through a very traumatic time and then you kind of right. black out that memory? <laughs> Maybe America just collectively blacked that out because Prohibition was really a horrible time. Looking back at it from a historic perspective, it was just a violent, bloody, sad period. Sometimes you have to look back in history because of the things that are happening now and see, you know, this stuff is... 
America's been killing us since 1776. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, if you think about it, you're thinking about, you know, everything that's going on today. You look back in history and some of this stuff was going on back then as well. All right. Well, this is part of the program where we invite an Ohio mystery listener to be our armchair detective. History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. Joining us tonight is Katie Brown from Columbus, Ohio. Hi, Katie. How are you doing? Hi, Paula. I'm doing well. How about yourself? I'm doing great. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Well, I was born and raised in Columbus, Ohio. I've been living here for 30 years now. I'm the oldest of uh, four other siblings. I was actually recently introduced to the hobby of wood burning, and I fell in love with it so much that I decided to turn it into a business. So uh, last week, I opened my own business. It's called Brown's Wood Burns. You can find me on Facebook and Shopify um, and Instagram at Brown's Woodburn. And um, yeah, I'm just a very fortunate person to be, you know, in my environment with my family and my friends for support. So the story of Wayne Wheeler, had you ever heard of this guy before? No, not until you mentioned him in our topics. I was like, who... Who is this guy? <laughs> I'd never even, you know, heard of him before and he's not really in the history books. And I even actually went down to Greenlawn Cemetery where he's buried and they have like a list of um, you know, noted historical figures on their map at the entrance. And surprise, surprise, Wayne was not on that list. <laughs> you are kidding me. How could he not be on that no. list? He's probably the most powerful person in that entire cemetery. <laughs> you know what, though? Um, 
uh, Norm, uh, both Norm and Rachel were extremely helpful in uh, helping me find his grave. And uh, Norm did tell me that you can just uh, make like a, present a case to the board of directors there to see if you can get him onto his li- onto their list. So I might be doing that in the near future. I think you should do it. I think he needs to be put back in the history books. Is there anything about this case that disturbed you? Because, frankly, the lengths he went to to get people to give up their alcohol (laughs) seemed pretty shocking. Did that bother you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. My goodness. I mean, you know, I can respect that he was looking to make the world a better place. And, you know, based on his, you know, past and background with alcohol, I can totally see why he wanted to, you know, change the world for the better and uh, prevent, you know, families from being destroyed. Uh, You know, the fact that he was so aggressive and went as far as poisoning people. So I think it comes down to three things, his background, his environment and his perspective. So in the book, Wayne Wheeler, Dry Boss, uh, by Justin Stewart, he mentions that there was not one, but two incidents that kind of traumatized Wayne as a child. As we, you know, we all know about, well, we all now know about the incident where he was impaled by the hay fork. But the book uh, mentions that Wayne wrote about an incident where a man named George Jones, who was known as an old Soak um, called to their house one evening, and uh, his father was gone that night. And uh, George Jones ended up just like frightening um, Wayne's mother and his sisters with this reenactment of uh, ten nights in a bar room. And even though Wayne's father eventually came back and removed George from their home he just couldn't get that image of a mother and her children being frightened by an old drunkard. (laughs) Oh, that's an interesting story. I hadn't heard that. So obviously there was more than one encounter with uh, intoxicated people in his life. Right. And I think you probably saw, I don't know if you watched the Ken Burns documentary on prohibition, but they also mentioned that he lost an uncle to alcoholism as well. It also mentions in the book that he, his family spent countless nights uh, searching for his uncle. He was drunk, and you just couldn't understand why the saloons were allowed to make people drunk like that and put their families through so much turmoil. And then there's another piece of information that I thought was really interesting from the book as well. So Wayne liked to find similarities between himself and his great-grandfather Phineas, who enlisted in the Continental Army when he was 20. And I guess he was like a sergeant and a corporal pretty frequently. And I think you can see that, uh, you know, the identification and Wayne looking at the similarities in his references to his workers as soldiers, like even down to the stenographers, you know, he really thought of them as fighting a cause. And then there's one more thing that I want to add. In the WOSU talk that I sent you from Nina at the Westerville Public Library, they actually mentioned that Wayne viewed people drinking as basically committing suicide. So I think that allowed him to justify, you know, his tactic for poisoning people as just. 
you know, that did seem to be the way he reasoned, especially the poisoning of the alcohol Mm -hmm. so that people would die. That certainly seemed to be the way he reasoned it in his head was like, you know what, it's if I give you a gun and tell you don't hold this up to your head and pull it and you do, then it's suicide. But that's not a full understanding of how alcohol works i mean there are people that you know obviously there are people who can't help it and to put them in harm's way to take advantage of that weakness oh wow that was just reprehensible i couldn't believe that many people feel that way i know oh it's just heartbreaking and you know that really he lost a lot of respect you know for using that as a way to get what he wanted, basically. And, you know, you mentioned he was called like the locomotive and trousers. And uh, he definitely loved that nickname. He was willing to do whatever it took to, you know, keep people from drinking. Well, I was glad to hear that his replacement was much more focused on treatment and education. Yeah, they seem to want to kind of wash their hands of all of the, basically the traumas that had come with Wayne's legacy. (laughs) And I think another thing to kind of take away from it and just kind of be mindful about is the propaganda. You know, Wayne had mentioned, and they mentioned in the book that, you know, the propaganda to drink was everywhere. And I feel like we still see that today. I mean, there's little bits and pieces here, like, I don't know about your town, but in Columbus, we have like little scoreboards that are, well, they're not scoreboards, but you know, they're like message boards that are on the highways and they say things like buzz driving is drunk driving and stuff like that. And, you know, uh, stay sober or get pulled over. But a large, almost overwhelming amount of advertising that's in your face is alcohol. We see it on YouTube. We see it on the sides of buildings. And it's just everywhere. Even the Columbus Zoo is now serving alcohol, which I found very surprising because it's been thought of as, you know, a family-run place for, you know, many years, for as long as I've lived here. Definitely, uh, alcohol sales for large distributors have risen during COVID. From what I've noticed from just talking to people and doing a little bit of studying, socializing and boredom are two huge triggers for drinking. And now with COVID happening, you know, people are getting bored more easily. You know, it's hard to know what to do when we're stuck at home. Have you ever been affected in your life by, you know, alcoholism or the way Wayne was? Yeah, actually. And that's, you know, what really stood out to me with his past. Um, So I can definitely relate to the passion behind a cause related to trauma. I went through a few traumas when I was in my late teens and early 20s. And for at least 10 years, I turned to um, alcohol and drugs as a coping mechanism. I don't know. Are you a Simpsons fan, Paula? Am I? Oh, Simpsons? Can you believe yeah. I have never seen a full episode? Really? <laughs> I know. It's blasphemous. But I'm sure everybody else will know what you're saying. So continue. Okay. <laughs> the point is, reason why I'm bringing it up is there's an episode called Boy Scouts in the Hood. 
and Barton Millhouse essentially go on like a squishy bender, and um, they end up like you know going out on the town and spending all their money and. Um, it ends with like everything spinning and Apu's head is laughing and Bart, you know, wakes up with this horrible squishy hangover in the morning. And <laughs> those used to be my nights more often than not, Paula. And it was, you know, at first, you know, for the longest time, I thought it was just, oh, I'm just being a typical 20 year old who's, you know, getting it out of my system. But then as I got older, I realized ooh, I am actually, you know, using this, uh, these substances and this socialization as a justification for fixing my problems. And it's causing more problems than it's helping me. You know, I had to take a good hard look at my habits and myself. And uh, recently, when I was in rehab for the long uh, for the second time, for the longest time, I thought I was beyond help too. I thought there was no way that I was going to recover. But a friend introduced me to AA, and I will totally, you know, admit it's not for everyone. But having a friend to introduce me to it really helped me, you know, set aside my biases and. Just like anything, you know, it's about meeting the right people. And I met the right people there. And I'm still fresh. It's been um, a month and 10 days since my last drink. I, you know, my life is changing. I never would have been able to be in a position where I would start my own business. And uh, my, you know, fellows constantly remind me that if I go back to those old habits, then my business is ruined. Wow, this is such a fresh topic for you. God bless you, Katie. I, I good luck with, you, with that, and I, I hope you keep walking down that path. Obviously, it's still you know very new, and it's going to be a challenge. But wow, how great that you have found some people to support you, and you're figuring it out. Good for you. Thank you. I'm very thankful. The key is to take it one day at a time. Katie, thanks so much for joining us and sharing your your personal story. That's really touching. I just want to thank you and Steve for bringing us this podcast. It's been, you know, just such a joy to listen to outside of you know the ongoings of everyday life and uh, the stress of everyday life, and it's just been a real enhancement to my daily activities. We are doing our best to try to fight boredom, so maybe in our own way we're doing a little (laughs) bit help there. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. And that brings us to tonight's featured musical artist. Lou Kirst is a rocker from the city of Lancaster, Ohio. He just released a new song, Lost Soul, the end of July, and I asked what inspired him. And here's what he said. I wanted to show people that even when you feel that you've lost your soul, you can still get back to the you that you were meant to be. This is also a love story. I chose to leave the woman of my dreams to go live the life of a rock star, leading me down the path of despair. Fortunately, I was able to realize what I had done to myself and save what I had lost. We are now getting married September 26, 2020. 
So congratulations, Luke. By the way, you can keep up with Luke on Facebook and Instagram. Well, let's have another listen to Lost Soul by Luke Hurst. And we'll see you next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries.
needed you That was the day our souls they knew Hello everyone, my name is Tom Kearns and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go.